This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Hi. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Hi, I'm Arjun. And I have the best seat in the house because I get a chance to talk to leaders from all walks of life, from all over the world. And in that spirit, today, it's absolutely my pleasure and delight to welcome my VIP guest, Hugh Bellow. Hugh is the president of Synervision Leadership Foundation, guiding the life-changing, life-saving global impact of churches and nonprofit organizations. He has 30 plus years of successful career in orchestrating success, working with visionary leaders, integrating strategy into performance. You know, taking a step back, Many a time in the corporate world, we are all about getting more, wanting more, but finding somebody who is making an impact in other people's lives and organizations. I really felt really excited about this particular conversation. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big, Hugh. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited about talking to you today. Thank you. So Hugh, first and foremost, congratulations on a career that has been marked with great, absolutely incredible impact. Let's talk about Synervision. So what is Synervision or how do you pronounce it? Of course, that's my first question. And how has it changed the world? Well, um, as you may, may or may not know, my, my major career was as a conductor, a musical conductor. And I conducted choirs and orchestras. And what we create, it's, it's, it's the example of transformational leadership in action. You, you have a bunch of singers, you transform them into a choir. You have a bunch of instrumentalists, you transform them into an orchestra. And then you take either one and you transform them into an ensemble. That's a musical group, it's a drama group, it's a group that functions at a higher level together without giving up their individual skills. We actually amplify our skills when we learn to work together. The parallel to that in the workplace, that's a non-musical parallel, is the synergy. And we get that synergy through a common vision. So I trademarked the name Center Vision. We create the synergy by being very clear as a leader. Here's our vision. So people then understand how to follow. Our default as leaders is we aren't very clear about what we expect. And we're not very clear in empowering others to reach that objective. And Anjan, I've, I, we're talking in the context of me being a nonprofit support person, uh, connecting that, that, that strategy and integrating it into performance. But I will tell you, it's much more difficult in the nonprofit sector than it is the corporate sector, sector. I work with corporate leaders who aren't aware that when you don't have that synergy in your workforce, you're leaking a lot of profit in places that you don't know about. So ultimately, if we slow down, if we look at performance, if we encourage people to follow their passion and we create a pathway, they understand not only how to perform at a higher level, but how to create synergies. People actually have to work less, they get more done, and they're more satisfied with the results. That's brilliant. So I have two follow-up questions. Let me ask you one at a time. 
first is what are what you know what were the challenges that you faced the pros and cons when you were orchestrating in the musical world from there when you brought it to the business world that's my first question and let me put the other one too because i'm getting old i forget at times what is the difference that you see in the corporate versus non-profit so let's stay on the first one first from music to the corporate world what were the changes well they're they're similar from a from a musical setting to a non-musical setting so I take the skills of a conductor, the skills that a conductor uses every day, mm-hmm. and I transpose those into the workplace. And some of the groups I've worked with have been conductors, like 100 conductors in a room working on leadership. And I was able to say, okay, you work for a college, you work for a church, you work for a community group. You can use the same skills you use for rehearsal in a meeting. Now, meetings are terrible. We're not very good at running meetings. Mm-hmm. Conductors are very good at conducting a rehearsal. We're very clear on outcomes. So we could do use that same methodology. How do you define clear outcomes? How do you define the space so everybody is a part of creating those? Now there's a there's this 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 fear of groupthink, which is the wrong way to approach it. Groupthink is we do everything as a mindless adoption for what the leader says we ought to do without asking why or understanding why we just do it. And we get in trouble with this group think. We just adopt it and we do it. And many leaders don't understand that, that workers, participants, volunteers, board members need to have a pathway and feel like they have permission. And we forget that. So we need to invite people to use the expertise. And we, by the way, have them on our team because they have an expertise. So let's take the orchestra. You got, you got 100 players. You got a variety of sounds. You got a variety of disciplines. You have a variety of personalities. They all approach music making differently. However, we've got this plan. How do we then show up as our best self and we play into the whole and, and we, we synergize with other people? It's, it's, it's a collaborative model of creating something together that in today's culture is not very common. So the orchestra is a really good model of a high-functioning team. They're aligned around principles, and they're focused on excellence, and it is empowered by working together. I love that. And the phrases that I was writing as fast as I could, because you were absolutely brilliant, is the thing that touched me was invite people to use their expertise. I love that concept, because many a time in the corporate world, it just becomes like the coolest leader is I tell you to jump and you say how high. Okay. So to me, I really felt that that humbleness that is there because with that, not only you get my attention, but you also get my heart to join you. And the second part I love is have a plan to make music together by synergizing with others. I love that. Absolutely brilliant. So now take me through what's the difference between corporate versus nonprofit? Well, it's a lot more difficult in the nonprofit world. Why is it? <laughs> you don't have the leverage of a paycheck. You don't have the systems of a lot of money to run it. We, we, we need people to step up their game and function as volunteers. Now, there's a, there's a fundamental misconception in either one. And so in the corporate world, the, the, uh, the leader is the boss, which is not a very flattering word at all, especially if you spell it backwards. Mm-hmm. So the conductor is perceived as a dictator for people who don't know that. So let me tell you, I got a bunch of union musicians there 
and I have this little white stick in my hand. Mm -hmm. I can't make anybody do anything. They're, I've contracted for a two hour, we call it a gig. I'm paying them for this one service. It's two hours. They're going to leave or they're going to be on time and a half. And they're already pretty expensive. We don't want to be, be paying uh, time and a half because we weren't effective in planning the rehearsal. We didn't plan the time. So we don't tell people what to do. I don't hire the very best oboe player and then tell them how to play the oboe. Mm -hmm. I have the music. They know how to play the oboe. They can read music. So I guide the process. I guide the balance and I guide the tempo and I encourage people to perform at a higher level. They respond to what they see. So what they see is what I get. In the corporate world, we do boss at people and we may have come in with this MBA degree and we have book learning of how it should be, but is that really what should happen in real life? Mm -hmm. Have we tested it? Do we understand the disciplines of all those different people? So we hire, here's an example to parallel that oboe story. We hire the very best marketing director and then we proceed to tell them how to do the job. That's what we call over-functioning as a leader. And the reciprocity of over-functioning on our part is under-functioning on their part. So we've just cut off any effectiveness, any sense of self-esteem, any passion that anybody, whether they're a volunteer or a paid worker, we've cut them off because we weren't smart enough as a leader to say, here's what I want. Very clear definition of the results. A conductor can say, here's what I want. And we have words, usually it's in Italian. We have words to define what we're going to do and how we're going to get there. And then we guide the process. If it's right, we go back and say, here's what I need differently. And they know what to do because we've analyzed it. And I'm surprised how many leaders, especially power leaders in the corporate world, don't stop and say, we need a course correction. So for instance, I'll stop a rehearsal and I'll say trumpets. That's too loud. Take it down one dynamic level. Well, some leaders, and I work with power leaders, and they're afraid of hurting people's feelings. Well, wait a minute, you got a job to do, you're paying them money, tell them what you need. So I say, take it down one level. Now, I did not insult them. I did not insult their integrity or their ability. They can't tell if they're too loud. They're playing a loud instrument. They're in the back of the orchestra. I'm in front, I can hear balance. And by the way, I'm the leader. If I don't make that course correction, What's the impact of the rest of the culture? Mm -hmm. I'm perceived to be a poor leader for good examples. Now, the nonprofit, we just kind of dance all around this. And we, we think because people are volunteering, we can't, we can't do any course correction, which is baloney. They're giving their time, which is a lot more important than money. They're not there to do a poor job. We have to learn how to tell them how to up their game, how to teach them, how to mentor them to perform at a higher level, which is not micromanaging. It is suggesting, ah, maybe here's a better way to do it. And then it's a win-win for everybody. So it's up to the leader to analyze where they want to go and then to help make course corrections along the way. And you know, in the spirit of course connection, the word that we have all used and heard is micromanaging. But today you helped me understand that micromanaging has a different dimension as you talked about the word over-functioning. It, to me, I think it just, I think over-functioning was more, as you talk about, is a course correction to bring it down to the right level of managing. So let me take you to an average meeting because so many meetings we all attend start with no chance of success. The wrong people are there. People who are not supposed to be invited are there. 
then we assume that these are people who cannot read. So we have to read a PowerPoint to them by saying, Hugh, boom, boom, boom. Like the PowerPoint reading has become an art which has to be in a meeting. We do not have a goal. And we finished more confused than we came in. Of course, I have the Hugh solution is, which I'm going to put everywhere is if the meeting goes over time, everybody just like an orchestra gets paid time and half. I'm just kidding, okay. But Hugh, so from the Hugh's point of view, what is the successful way to conduct a productive meeting? First off, the agenda is the killer of productivity. We check off things that are activities as an agenda item. And by the way, agenda has multiple meanings, some of which are nasty. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody gets mad and they say, oh, he's got an agenda. So, so you don't see any school teacher or any conductor do a rehearsal or do a lesson plan or a rehearsal plan with an agenda. Teachers teach to learning objectives. We teach for results. Rehearsals are the same. We work toward results. So if you first off say, here's what we're going to accomplish. People know that you've planned it and people expect results. So we say, here, is our, here are our deliverables. These are measurable outcomes. So here's a, for instance, an agenda item for a meeting, whether it's nonprofit or business, we're going we're gonna to talk about marketing. Okay, so what? We can talk about marketing at the water cooler. So that's a customary agenda item, marketing. We say, well, what do y'all think? We talk about it. We have no, no process for getting anywhere. A deliverable is we're going to define the top five marketing strategies that will increase our attendance, our profit, our products, whatever, 25% quantifiable results at the same profit margin. So we've got a specific objective for that 90-minute meeting. So we're going to accomplish this. Now, what we're not going to do, which is just as important as what we are going to do, and this is where leaders fail. We don't set off limits. We don't set what we're not going to do. And people go down rabbit trails and they try to solve problems when we haven't understood what we're trying to solve. So we're going to define these five strategies. So we're going to look at every option. We're going to look, see if any can be combined for strength. We're going to look, see if there's a sequence of one, two, three in all of those objects, objectives. And then we're going to assign those to somebody to do the details. What we're not going to do is the details of all of those strategies. This meeting is getting clarity on what those strategies are assigning the responsibility, come back with a plan. The next meeting, those people come back with a plan. So they've taken an assignment from one month or one week to the next week. They've come back with a plan. We can't, the more people we have, the harder it is to make decisions. So you take a subgroup, you task them with coming up with results. They bring it back to the group for nuance, for correction, for additions, and for adoption. So we teach people that we don't do work at meetings. We work between meetings. In meetings, we fine tune what we have done and we create the next strategy, which people will be do between this meeting and the next meeting. It might be one day to the next in a business environment in a nonprofit, it might be one month to the next. So there's, there's the leader's duty and, and responsibility to keep tabs on what's going on, especially in the nonprofit when people aren't on the payroll and they have a full life and they might forget from one month to the other what, what they're supposed to be doing. So the antithesis of micromanaging is mentoring. So we're giving people tools, we're sharing know-how, we're helping them solve problems. We are not doing it for them. So micromanaging is doing it for them, over-functioning. Mentoring is asking them how they're doing and what do they need? 
So the fundamental strategy is, like Covey says in, in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, begin with the end in mind. So here you are. Now we're going to end up with those five strategies. So how do we get there? A, we brainstorm the options. B, we sort them for relevance. Is it possible? It, do we have resources? Is it practical? Is it timely? Then we look at combining them. Then we look at streamlining them. Then we look at sequencing them. Then we commit them to an action. So we've got a process and we have to think about, well, will this take 10 minutes? Will it take 15 minutes? So we define each of those modules. How much time will it take? In rehearsal, we have to learn this piece of music. I have to decide how much time it's going to take for us to rehearse that. And then I put in a buffer. So the number one rule of thumb is start with a, the end in mind. That's your deliverables. That's success because you're focused on outcomes. Secondly, you never plan the whole meeting. So I said, we're going to have a 90 minute meeting. Only plan two thirds of that. So there's 60 minutes of activity because it might take longer. And we don't want to go into overtime. It shows you've not done your planning. And by the way, there's some sliding priorities that might come up. So you need the wiggle room to deal with it. And I will tell you, in 32 years of running meetings as a professional facilitator, not once, and John, not once has anybody got angry because we've adjourned a meeting early. It's like a delight. It's like a bonus. Wow. Two big things for me is work between meetings, not in meetings. And, you know, to me, I think that Covey statement, I think it can't ever get dated, begin with the end of mind. I think each one of us in a given day, at least, you know, when the world will get more normal, we'll do it more, is we use the GPS. The GPS does not work. If you and the GPS do not know where you're going, and the GPS is the politest thing on this planet, okay? If you don't know where you are, GPS says no signal found. That's their GPS's way of saying, you idiot, you don't know where you are. If you put an address or you don't know where you're going, GPS says, again, politely, address not found, which means you bozo. You have no clue where you're going, okay? And there's no GPS. So to me, I really love what you just talked about is we don't do that when we drive. Why do we do that on the business world? So I want to, yeah, go ahead, please. You have something. What I suggested takes work. Now you're the leader. Mm -hmm. You, the assumption is we have good work. We're, mm -hmm. we're doing worthy work mm -hmm. and we have qualified people. Mm -hmm. So our responsibility is to plan the meeting. And I said, we're going to plan 60 minutes worth of activity for a 90 minute meeting mm -hmm. because there's always greeting time, clarification time, some social time. So that 60 minutes will expand most likely. And Many times we're very optimistic on how much time it's going to take. So give ourselves a buffer. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the 90 minute meeting. Here's the secret for a conductor. We spend two to three hours for every hour of rehearsal, planning that rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So for a two hour rehearsal two, four, we spend four to six hours planning it and leaders say, well, I don't have time. Wait a minute. You're paying these people. And I run groups with a lot of lawyers or not billing $400 an hour for that 90 minutes. So you got important people, you're taking them offline and you're going to do, and you're going to waste their time because you haven't spent time planning mm -hmm. and, and volunteers, they're community leaders. You're going to waste their time. They don't want to come back if you're going to do that. So the fundamental principle is two to one to three to one, spend time planning it. If you want good results and always define, okay, what did we say we were going to do? So we define the deliverables to be sure that we get traction, you create an action plan. It starts with two. 
to create, to implement, to define, and a name. John will do this. When? John will bring it back to the next meeting. So what is the task? Who will do it? When will they do it? That's the other big dysfunction of meetings is we talk about all this stuff and everybody leaves and there's no game plan. We must leave with a game plan and a communication plan. Who needs to know? Well, there was somebody in the room that we just assume is going to learn this by osmosis. No, we have to create a specific message because if we're doing important work, it's going to impact other people in the company, in the nonprofit or in the community. So we have to create a specific message and who needs to know that? So those are the two follow-up dysfunctions is the, there's no action. So create actions and communications. What are the messages? So now let me share a very personal story. Last Friday, I was in a breakout room. We were given 18 minutes. There were eight of us. And usually in breakout rooms, some talk, some don't. It's total chaos. This day, something magical happened. Each one of us got a chance to share without being rushed what we feel was relevant to the topic. Then there were follow-up discussions where we added values. We even got a chance to critique and we all left feeling, wow. But I hated when I left that. I hated the guy who was conducting it, some guy called Hugh something because he raised the bar for me that breakout rooms going forward will be never that without you. So that's the part where, you know, as all of you are listening, I really would ask you to follow Hugh and we'll put the contact information, everything, because I just find that this is a space where a lot of us talk about this, but I didn't know Hugh that well. So and he's not paying me to see this, but experiencing that in 18 minutes, it's not me. Each one of us, when we were chatting, we felt, wow. And today what I learned is in life, great success is never an accident. The man had a plan, even on a Friday afternoon. So with that, I want to bring my success to you and I want to ask you, can you share something which is non-confidential, some stories of success of a team or a leader that makes you proud and pat you on the back by saying, you know, Hugh, you, you are doing cool things in life, man. You mean a project I actually worked on? Anything, yes. Well, behind me, if you're listening, there's an orchestra behind me and that's me in the penguin suit there on the podium. And um, I'm commanding the space because I've got the, uh, the, the chart there. So there's dots on paper. <clears throat> and so, like you said in my introduction, the responsibility of the leader is to integrate strategy, which that's the strategy in business. It's your strategic plan, your goals. You integrate that into performance. And we're successful. We're measured by the performance. And in a, in a music or drama or NASCAR race, you know, you're measured by your success, by your performance, and you're only as good as the last one. And your, your success and failure is immediately visible. And so I, when I first moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, of uh, 2017, I met the president of the board of the symphony. And they, and I said, you know, can I be helpful? And she said, yeah, we're just stuck. People aren't coming to the concert. People in this town of 80,000 people don't know we have a symphony. We're losing money and we're, you know, it's trouble. So I started attending meetings. We did a visioning session. Yeah. 
what's the possibility? We don't think we can do things until we dream. We were, you know, when we were kids in, in grammar school, they penalized us for dreaming. We're visionary leaders. We need to dream. So we put it on paper. And over the next two and a half years, it happened. All of those things we put on paper happened. And then one day that president said to me, oh, you're directing the Christmas concert. And I said, oh, I am. And so I was new to town. They did. I said, how did you know I can do this? She said, oh, we saw some of your videos. Okay. So long story short, I worked behind the scenes, helping them create a clear strategy, helping them create pathways for committees. Committees in some organizations are known as places where good ideas go to die. We, we built their strategy. We built their goals. And then each team, each, each committee knew how to play into that. It's sort of like the different sections in the orchestra. And so we, we orchestrated success. And my job was to conduct transformation. So you see my marker says conducting transformation is how leaders orchestrate success. And we create the plan. So I did the very same thing with the board that I did in rehearsal. We have all these ideas. We put them together. We rehearse it. We get better. So meetings are rehearsals for excellence. So either if we do a bad job of meetings, we're rehearsing the low performance scale. We're going to the bottom. If we rehearse excellent results, we become better, just like the orchestra, just like the drama group, just like the sports team. Mm -hmm. So perfect, perfect practice. I was trying to remember the quote, perfect practice makes, per makes perfect, not practice, perfect practice. Mm -hmm. So we practice excellence and that becomes the DNA. So Lynchburg Symphony went into the pandemic strong, money in the bank, with an audience, with supporters, and they were able to do some virtual concerts. Now they're back performing live and they're back to full strength. They made it through a season when many orchestras folded up, many nonprofits folded up because they just didn't have the substance. So it wasn't that I did it, uh, Anjan, it was that I was the catalyst for them to access what they already had in skills and talents and put them together. So we developed the board ensemble, not just the orchestra ensemble, we still developed the board ensemble. And it's a different organization because they stepped up. There are some organizations I work with that aren't willing to step up. The writer, James Allen says, people wanna change their circumstances, but are unwilling to change themselves. They therefore remain bound. And I got to tell you, a lot of leaders stay bound because, no, this is how it's supposed to be. Now, wait a minute. You're not getting the results you want, but you're not willing to change something. Goodbye. I can't help you. So that's one of, of many. There's, there's many projects I've done, even where I live, that um, have been successful. And I'm real proud that I had a season there and I was able to make an imprint and I was able to pass it on to the next person. And it was better than I found it. And that's the goal of any leader. Do your part. And then you set up the next person for greater success. There are two big things that came out as you were sharing. One is I'll start from the, it was the end what you talked about succession planning. Because to me, without succession planning being one of the last critical pieces, it really doesn't work. Like think, US men's and women's relay team, they are incredible athletes. But every year we struggle on how do we give the baton to the next person. Like my race is not over till I successfully give the other person. And then as he or she takes off, I run across the field to cheer her more. And that is huge. And the second part, when you talked about practice, I really feel that that is such a beautiful concept. I have worked with 
one of the top golfers of all times. And he taught me this very simple thing is purposeful practice with feedback, without which you're practicing your bad shots. And if I indulge in a one minute story, I was waiting for him hitting a few balls at the range. He comes behind me and asks me, so what are you doing? And by that time I have known him well enough when he asked me what you're doing, I right away said, I don't know. He said, good. So he took my golf club and says, hey, you know, this is not bad. He says, seven iron, okay. He says, do you see that pole right there at 175 yards? I said, yeah. He said, I will hit the ball two feet beyond and then it will come back four feet back. Arjun, the ball can go there nine ways. Straight, left to right, right to left. High, medium, low, choose. This guy likes to bring the ball right to left and low. So, of course, I said, left to right, high. He said, you idiot, I knew you would say that. Then he just went into a zone. He just stood there, just looking at the target. Then when he hit the ball, I thought he would hit the exact target. I was getting excited. He said, shut up. The ball was three feet off. Then he made some hand adjustments. Then he again looked, he did it. So after 15 minutes, I realized this man had just hit 15 back-to-back -back shots doing exactly what he wanted. Now, I took a step back later. 175 times three, which is close to 525 feet. This guy's margin of error is plus minus three feet. That's what he knew how to adjust in his practice. Like there was nothing at stake, not even a dollar was bet. But for him, he felt he could not leave practice till he hit perfection and he knew what it was. And to me, as I'm talking to another stalwart from a different industry in music, I love what you're talking about. But the only difference is in golf, he alone is doing it. In your case, how you talked about you are getting, you are responsible for the whole team to do this. So now you have done a lot of work with nonprofits, especially of health churches, synagogues. What made you choose this path? Well, I worked for the church um, for 40 years as music director. Mm -hmm. And I determined uh, toward the end of that, when I was at a 12,000 member church and had a huge program, it was on national TV. Um, I determined that 10% of my work was music. Mm -hmm. And I could say that about any anybody that runs uh, an organization, whether it's a, a business, it's an entrepreneur, speaker, um, coach, consultant, or a nonprofit leader. 10% is your product, your service, what you do for people. And we, we impact people's lives by what we do, but that's 10% of your enterprise. Now we're running a for-profit business or we're running a tax exempt for purpose enterprise. Mm -hmm. They both have to generate revenue. We, we, uh, from either one, we generate revenue because we provide value to people. Mm -hmm. And, and so we're, we're, our job is not totally dependent on us. Our job is dependent on leading other people in a way they know to follow. Right. And, and so the, the job for us is to be really clear. And, and I, I personally believe, and I model this, I currently have two coaches, the, the successful people, you talked about golf, you had a coach, the successful people have coaches and usually more than one. It's the people that say, oh, I'm going to figure it out myself that are still out there figuring it out. 
you could shorten the timeline. You could be more successful. You had somebody to give you that feedback. So being transparent and being humble is a prerequisite. I could not make music until I was willing to be transparent and be vulnerable on the podium, to be a human being, and then, you know, gather the people in the space and then encourage them to perform. So it's, uh, it's, we rehearse for success. The best ensembles in the world rehearse for every performance in business. Oh, we just do it. It's going to get better. Well, we're continuing to lead a downward spiral of low functioning. And we don't step outside of it and say, like you had the coach, I want to make sure this happens because I'm defining the DNA of how I function. We're defining the DNA of our, of our company. And let me point out that what I'm proposing is what's called transformational leadership. Mm-hmm. I talked about transforming individuals into an ensemble in that, that journey. Our job is transformation in the nonprofit world. We think it's feeding people. Our job is transforming people, impacting their lives, making it better. That's our product. We just happen to feed people. We just happen to help people get out of their situation. We just happen to do something. But 90% of our enterprise is not our discipline. It's all the systems that make it work. It's the people that write the music scores, the people that print the parts, the people that make the instruments, the people that created the culture. You know, all of those factors come together. And, and make a success. So I worked in the organized church for 40 years. I know that system really well. And the, the, the pastors and the rabbis that understand the business of church, mm-hmm. it's far from the, the, the religious side. The business of church is what keeps the organization functioning so you can do your ministry, whatever faith you are. So we, we don't think about that. They don't teach that in seminary. They don't teach that in college. It's the functional part that allows you to access your excellence and share it with people. Thank you. So now let me go, just make this conversation a little personal. Okay. Just want to get a little understanding of what got you to where you are. So if you walked into a pub or a bar or a coffee shop and you met Hugh, 16 year old, and on the other side of the table is Hugh, 100 year old, and you, they just welcome you, give you a big hug. What would the conversation look like that day? Well, let me point out I'm three quarters of the way there. I am 75. And I will point out that I started my career when I was 18. And um, I, I got my first job directing a choir at 18. And I had never been in a choir. I'd studied piano, new theory, a new music. I had been a church attender. So I got hired as a church choir director. So I said, oh, I've seen somebody do it. I can do that. So I was a possibility thinker and somebody gave me an opportunity. This is important to give young leaders opportunity when they're nothing but potential. Mm-hmm. And I was nothing but potential. So I had that job and I was in music school and doing that. And I was a photographer, worked in a camera store. I, uh, I did weddings, photograph weddings, taught piano students. So I was able to pay for my college and my housing by the work I did that was mostly in my discipline. And then I went in the army and I came out and I went to Florida. This was in Atlanta, Georgia. And then I got a church job and I worked in a camera store. And then I said, Hmm, why don't I buy a camera store? So I got a money partner and I bought a little camera shop on Madeira beach, Florida doing $12,000 a year. Now keep in mind, I had this part-time church job as well. I was doing music. So this was a business side of me. So I knew the business routines that I could embed in my leadership in the church. So I bought this doing $12,000. So fast forward ahead, 
I took that little camera store into a million and a half dollar business, 1.45 million, because there was a need and I grew the, and addressed the need. We don't think in terms of opportunities. And I wasn't a merchant. I didn't know business. I learned it. If I knew what I knew, if I had known then what I know now, I could have gone to 3 million, but I didn't. But I, I did what I understood and I understood the discipline. So I grew this, this very large thing because I was willing. So my first career was doing this, this church music, but it went on for 40 years. And overlapping, I had a second career of being a business person a merchant who developed a very strong business and pretty much owned silver imaging in central Florida for uh, place departments and newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Third career now, which is, there's a parallel with Verdi. Verdi wrote operas and his early career was classical, Rigoletto, middle, middle career, romantic period. Third period, it was pushing the envelope further with the Requiem with, uh, and some Shakespeare operas, Otello, Meister Singers. The critic said he was senile because he was so far ahead of them, <laughs> he couldn't understand it. So my third career is moving into a future in using what I've learned in my first career. So it's a business application into the world of leadership. And we are strategy minded. We must be strategy minded. We must be visionary. So it's the right left brain. We have a rigid structure. We must be creative in that without breaking the rules. So we have financial rules, we have process rules. In the nonprofit world, we have a lot of rules as way money goes. So what we need to do is access our full brain. If we can't, we surround ourselves with people that complement those skills. So if we're not strategic, we're visionary, we employ somebody who is strategic and we let them do that work because it makes us look good. So when I'm 100, 100 years old, I will still be doing the work of nurturing leaders. Mm -hmm. And I will have learned much more in the fourth period of my life in that last 25 years that will accelerate my effectiveness. So when I get introduced on stage as a speaker, people say, oh, he's an expert in leadership. And I used to go, no, 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 I'm a student of leadership, which is true. Because if you ever stop learning, you're dead. I am, I am an expert because you know what? In 75 years, I've made enough mistakes and learned from those mistakes that I am qualified as an expert because I know a lot of things that don't work. Mm -hmm. So in my last hundred years, I will take everything that I've learned, add to it, because what I've learned in the last two years is greater than I learned in the first 72 years. So we never stop improving ourselves. Love that. So let me now be just ask you just for the fun of it, one question you want to ask Lou, uh, sorry, Hugh, 100 years old. One question. What would be the question you want to know from him? Answer. If I was asking, I say, what would you do differently? Okay. So that's the big question. And that's, that's, you know, I made mistakes. What would you do differently? Got it. Thank you. So this is fascinating because as I'm listening to you, I'm just wowed by how much content we have covered, but everything is connected. There's a common thread between the whole thing and the thread is where we started is how leaders orchestrate success. You took me into the depth of meetings. You took me into what leaders should or shouldn't do. And also every time, instead of 
sharing judgmental statements. You gave me a path for a leader to come back, how to come out of micromanagement, how to get better meetings. And to me, I really think this conversation, I truly appreciate the path. So anything else we haven't talked that you want to share about you with our listeners? Um, I embraced the work of Burns and Bass in the 80s, which was transformational leadership. And the conductor is the model of that. So that fit my persona because it's not about me. It's about the vision. And, it, and from my position of faith, God's given me a vision. And God didn't give it a committee. God gives it in, the, in my history to a person. And a person leads that. So I've taken the word of Burns and Bass. It's about building high teams as leaders. Everybody in the team is a leader in their own right. And so I'm a leader of leaders, guiding people to their better performance, to be their best selves and to show up fully present. So what I did is here's four, here's four principles, just anchor principles. I step on the podium. I got to know the score. Boom. I have to know where I'm going. I have to know what's written down there because there's a whole bunch of notes and I don't have time to look at them when I'm there. I need to know about it. So in non-music talk, that's the foundations. Know where you're going know how you're going to get there and develop the skill to do it. Secondly, I've put qualified people around me. I hired the best in my ensembles. So this is about relationships. The first one is foundations. Where are you going? Are you equipped? Second one is about people. Build and maintain good relationships with good people. Third one, I talked about meetings. We have good work, good people, and we crash because meetings are terrible. Annual evaluations are a curse. So create a system where the good people can do the work that you see. That is the piece that's rehearsed for success. We set the DNA. And the fourth one, there's music, there's rest in music. Those aren't just absence of sound, that's punctuation that gives clarity to what happened and, and gives you a, a setup for the next thing. If we don't have this balance, I call it, foundation, relationships, systems, balance. If we don't have the balance, nothing else works. So it's care of self, management of self, it's up to us. So balance physical, mental, spiritual. Don't work all the time. Balance work and personal. Make sure that you show up your best selves because you are the leader. Thank you. So I asked you a lot of questions and you answered everything I asked. It's only fair. Do you, is, do you have any questions for me? <coughs> Why did you want to interview me? Oh, the answer is very simple. The way the meeting was going, I wanted to know the success. Like, I just realized that this is a man who does not pull off this kind of a breakout session just once in a lifetime. With your demeanor, your calmness, your confidence, I really realized that there has to be a science and an art behind this madness of success. And I really wanted to get to know that. It was as simple as that. And I'm so glad today you gave me a glimpse of who you are and how you do that by making us feel good, contribute, and respect us. You didn't do that using the stick. You did that guiding us to success. And I truly appreciate you doing that. I could use my hands too. Yes. So what do you see in, from your experience working with all kinds of people, what do you see is the, the biggest mistake leaders make? Uh, so to me, I just feel leaders forget what their job description is. I just have looked at a lot of CEOs and I have found only four things 
we need leaders for. Number one is what you talked about, the Kaviism about being the end in mind, I look at is leaders must see clearly what the end goal is, but they also need to move to different seats in the orchestra for different leaders, sub-leaders, to see from their point of view what that win finish line is and transfer that vision. Because without helping everybody else also see that vision, it does not work. So to me, that's the most important thing for a leader. The second is for a leader to feel all powerful in breaking barriers. If you are my boss, if I just have one of those days, all I need to do is get my backside over to your office, sit on the couch and say, hey, buddy, you listen by saying, okay, Arjun, I'll break that. I'll do that. Like having that amazing power of breaking barriers is so important because you see the zoom, the bigger picture. The third and the order of two and three are very important is bringing resources. Because if you bring resources before breaking barriers, you're setting me up for failures. So number three, I always see is a leader brings me resources. The leader says that Arjun, can you do this to scale this up? He does not do the things. Just like in my relationship with my wife, we have a very simple rule. You can tell me what to do, when to do it, but never how to do it. If you tell me how to do it, I don't listen. Like, I'm not a robot. Like, you can do it. Like, I won't do it. I'm like that little kid. And that's the part that is there. And the fourth and the most important thing for a leader, I find, is a leader needs to, after he does or she does all these things, he or she needs to take a step back, be a cheerleader, and applaud every move. Because being that cheerleader is the most important thing. Because if you cannot appreciate the success of every piece and how it connects to it, goes back to number one, the goal. I just think that's an opportunity miss because bonus for a leader is connected by that moment of having goosebumps to see all these individuals doing incredible. Like you as the orchestra leader must have goosebumps to see every piece is falling in place because you had the thread, but they're doing it. And bravo, something happens. And that to me is my four steps. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And when you talked about um, the big picture, the leader must have the macro in mind and, and, and give attention to the micro. Absolutely. We don't want to get lost in the weeds. We cannot lose sight of where we're going. But yeah. if we don't, the, the, the devil or the, or the angel, depending on which way it comes out, is in the details. And if the, it'll get you. If you don't, in music, it's, it's the attention of the details that gives you the excellent. If you don't master your fundamentals of your instrument, if you've not rehearsed your golf swing, you're not going to be any good. You know, when you go on the tournament, you know you can, you can hit that ball. When you know in, in concert, you're going to play that note and it's going to sound great and people are going to go, oh, yes. So it's, we never give up. You know, the, the, the three feet from goal, like the person in Napoleon Hill's story, he gave up, sold a gold mine, person that bought it dug three feet, and hit the mother load. We never give up because we've got the vision and the commitment to see it through. That's, that's the biggest challenge. I see leaders give up all the time when they were just about to make it. Absolutely. And that's the part where I love the combination of macro and micro. I look at to be a leader must have this most am amazing zoom 
where on one side you can see the tiny leaf with a little insect on it. On the next second, you can zoom back and see how that insect can damage the whole planet, maybe the Milky Way, and can go back and forth. Because if you look at, there are people who can see the big picture. A goofy politician can tell you bigger picture without connecting back to you. On the other side, there are people who get into the micro details but do not know how to connect. So again, Hugh, I truly appreciate you sharing from your heart. And I came to learn maybe two or three things. You gave me incredible amount of things that I personally have to listen to it a few times. Again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. This was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I am enriched by knowing you and having conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. Again, as you start looking at how leaders orchestrate success, the big thing that I took from you is respecting people. Respecting people came from respecting their time, taking the responsibility that you have to prioritize what they do. How do you invite them to use their expertise with you? But even though Hugh didn't use that word himself, but all through he demonstrated that respect he has for people at every place. And that to me is my biggest gift that Hugh gave all of us. So thank you all for listening. I truly appreciate having the best seat in the house. Until next time, happy listening and stay safe. Thank you. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>